Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Welcome to Space Boffins. We're recording the podcast live in the main hall at Astrofest in London. Cue world applause. Oh, that actually worked. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientist. I'm Richard Hollingham. With me, Sue Nelson and the science writer, astronomer, journalist, lead guitarist, Stuart Clark. I don't like the way I've only got one, one title there. Stuart gets about five. What else would you like? Um, I will have tennis player, space fan... I was going to say space junkie, but that sounds a bit... That does no, sound a bit, okay. yeah. We'll just stick with space fam. Uh, later we'll be hearing from the man we've seen laugh, cry, and in fact hug his colleagues all on live TV and all in the name of space science. It's European Space Agency's Andrea Akamatso. We'll also be speaking to the scientists who discovered the mysterious Planet Nine, the solar system's distant outer planet, and an extract, one of the last interviews we did, in fact, with the last man on the moon, Gene Cernan, a remarkable man who sadly died in January. Plus, there's going to be um, a, a sort of a, a nice little audio interruption. Apparently, there's going to be a fire alarm test at some point during the, uh, the podcast, so we'll, uh, we'll see how that goes. That's going to be a little freeze on there. So, Stuart, you're chairing a lot of the, the sessions here. A lot of people that come to Astrofest come here year after year because they love it. What, what sort of things can they expect? Yes, well, we've been running uh, 25 years now at Astrofest. And every year what we try to do is to bring together the people who have really made some sort of difference in astronomy and in space in that year so that we can give a, a a picture of all the advances that we've made, maybe the mysteries that we've uncovered, and a little bit of a flavour of what we can look forward to in the future as well. And there are an awful lot of telescopes uh, on offer and for sale. There's quite a lot of hardware out there as well. So it's it's for people who don't just want to know about space, but they actually want to take an active part as well in astronomy. Absolutely. It's for people who who really do want to come and spend a lot of money on on telescopes. Um, And just and just see, because part of the reason for being astronomers and for taking an interest in the universe, yes, it's to understand our place in the universe and all these physical processes, but also it's just to look and be awestruck and inspired by the beauty of the universe around us. Do you think there's a little bit of an obsession with hardware, with, <laughs> with sexy telescopes? Yeah. I, in all hobbies that... Happens. People boast about their eight inches, don't they? 
<laughs> That's being cut out. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you think. <laughs> right. Well, our first guest is one of the new one of the leaders of a new expedition to Antarctica to search for meteorites. Catherine Joy is a senior lecturer at the University of Manchester. Now, Catherine, you've been on what two? expeditions before to look for meteorites in Antarctica. Why Antarctica? I mean, is it just because, hey, it's Antarctica? It's just a cool place to go. No, there, there is a very, very good reason. So meteorites we can find anywhere on Earth. We see them fall as fireballs. Um, fortunately, one hasn't hit London for a while, but you know, there's always the chance in the future that it could. But the reason we go down south to the ice is because, um, A, you can only go there if you've got scientific reasons to go. So there's lots of material there to collect. Um, B, they're very easy to spot. So I have a meteorite right in my hand, which um, I'm holding up. So for the purposes of radio, I'm going to clank it against another one. But okay, you can so that sounds metallic. It, it is. So we have a metallic one and a slightly stony one, but you can see the exterior colour on both is quite black. And so we can quite easily see a nice black rock sitting on a white ice. Do you want to have a pass that one over? There we go. The chances of them dropping in Antarctica are the same as the chances of them dropping in London? Um, so the, statistically, we think they can fall anywhere all over the world and it's kind of a random distribution there's a really great fireball map that NASA released a couple of years ago showing all the fireball observations which is biased somewhat in terms of where we have cameras where we have reports of different uh, fall events but yes we think statistically they can fall anywhere in a random pattern okay so why go to Antarctica to look for them easy to find um, there is a natural mechanism whereby the ice delivers meteorites that fall on the interior to natural collection points against the mountain ranges. And so, How does that work? So the ice kind of migrates out from the centre to the edge, and as it hits the mountains, it gets kind of compressed and moves very slowly. The ice pops up, carrying the meteorite load buried within it. The winds blow the surface of the ice off, leaving lots of rocks just sitting there waiting to be found. So some places you can go to, there are tens, hundreds, sometimes thousands of meteorites just in a very small area. So basically what you're saying is you don't need any area of expertise to collect meteorites in Antarctica. You need good training, so it probably takes a few days to learn what is the local rocks or the local geology versus the meteorites, but, but they do take a wide variety of people to go and collect them, yes. Now, this one that you've brought has got, looks like an engraving, a sort of stone skid mark, if you like, a sort of a, a ridge across it that does look like a car's tyres but in 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 stone what has caused that uh that's a human being we sawed that one open viciously Ah, (laughs) i see right so some of the meteorites do have beautiful patterns inside. So the iron one that I've got in my hand, we etched the surface away using acids to reveal kind of the crystal structure within it, which is why you can see this beautiful pattern. Now, this um, meteorite's got a small bit of pale-coloured rock in it. Now, you're going to tell me now that that's somebody else has done that or or is that natural so um with if you turn the meteorite around and you kind of see lots of the shiny stuff on the cut face that's metallic structures but yes there are some sort of inclusions different mineral types that are found within different meteorites and they all come from different parent bodies the one that you have in your hand was once an asteroid located formed kind of between the orbits of mars and jupiter how do you know that so the ones like the the asteroidal ones we can match up with the composition of asteroids observed by space telescopes by missions we've sent there. Some meteorites we think we can group really well with certain asteroids. So for example Vesta which is one of the largest asteroids we think we have a population of meteorites that come from them quite a lot in our collection. Other ones we have from the surface of Mars and from the Moon and for a long time it was debated particularly with Mars um, how, how, how we know that, that that link has been made and eventually after much debate and discussion it took about 
10 years, they, they measured the composition of gases trapped within individual minerals, but then they matched up with the observations from some of the spacecraft. So the, the chemical, the isotopic signature proved the connection between the two. Mm. And the, the one that you're holding, the iron mm. meteorite, I mean, these ones absolutely fascinate me. So am I right in thinking that these must have come from slightly larger bodies that, to all intents and purposes, were, were almost like planets? They and were, then yeah. shattered. Yeah, exactly that. So they were what we call protoplanets. So these are planets that, that would have formed much like the early embryos that formed the Earth and Mars, Venus and Mercury. They got bigger and bigger and bigger. They got hot enough to melt. And then they differentiated and they formed cores. And that, that's the iron meteorite that I'm holding in my hand made of iron and nickel metal. Mm. But then they got smashed apart when a, another asteroid collided within them and they never made it to the point where they could get big enough to and form I a planet. I find that just... Isn't utterly mind-blowing. And holding it, I've you're, just got it here You're holding a piece of a shattered planet. planet. Does that I make you feel powerful, Sue? It, it does. It really does. I mm. mean, it, it makes you awestruck. I hate the, sort the phrase awesome. sort of thing Darth Vader probably does, doesn't <laughs> yes. it? You know, a bit of a shattered yeah. planet. I mean, the phrase awesome is banded around, but I think this is where that phrase is genuinely deserving piece of asteroid and a piece of a shattered planet. So tell me about, you've got two expeditions coming up, what will you be doing in those? We've just secured funding from the Leverhulme Trust, who are a charitable organisation who are going to support a scientific mission that's UK-led to go down to Antarctica, working in collaboration with the British Antarctic Survey. And this mission is predicated around testing kind of an exciting hypothesis. We think that statistically there have been less iron types of meteorites recovered in Antarctica than elsewhere in the world. Now, there, there could be lots of different reasons for this, but the theory that my colleagues in Manchester oppose mathematicians is that because the irons um, conduct uh, heat from the sun much more than the stony types do, they could have sunk down within the ice and there may be a trapped layer. Really, no, nobody run away if we're going to be OK. Attention, please. Attention, please. Fire has been reported in the building. Please leave the building immediately by the nearest exit. Do not use the lifts. I am pretty sure that really is a test, but I'm sounding slightly less confident now. Yeah, well, if, if you smell anything, <laughs> just let us know and it should be fine. Oh, here we go. It goes on, doesn't it? <laughs> attention, please, attention, please. The test of the fire and voice alarm system has now been... He sounds really perky. That's what you're talking about. That. <laughs> anyway, <They're> very thorough. <laughs> tell us about just very briefly this. Yeah. The, so, what are you trying to prove? So, we're going to go to Antarctica using to develop technology to try and find the hidden meteorites. So, to try and detect ones that are trapped within the ice. That's that's what we've been funded to do. But clearly, if we're going to go and do that, the great news is we can collect ones that are on the surface as well. So, it's a twofold mission. We'll we'll get hopefully lots of good meteorites returned for planetary science, so we can discover new things about how the solar system formed and how it evolved, but also to test this intriguing mathematical hypothesis. So, um, yeah, a couple of years' time, and we'll tell you what we're going to find. Fantastic. Catherine Joy, thank you very much. This is the Space Boffins podcast. We're recording live in London's fashionable Kensington at Astrofest. Do you remember what you were doing when this happened? Okay, so we are there, and Phila is talking to us. Uh, first things he told us was that the harpoons have been fired, rewound, and the landing gear um, has been moved inside, so we are sitting on the surface. 
Phila is talking to us. More data to come and, and to be analysed right now. Well, Stuart and I certainly do, because we were in uh, Darmstadt, Germany, when that happened at the European Space Agency's mission control for the uh, Rosetta landing on the 12th of November 2014. And that was of uh, ESA's fillet uh, probe on comet 67P Churyumov-Gerasimenko. And we're delighted to have the man who oversaw that historic landing as a flight director. And uh, here at Astrofest as well, he's ESA's head of solar and planetary missions, Andrea Akamatsu. Now, Andrea, for me, one of the most memorable parts of that mission, apart from Matt Taylor's choice of shirts, was um, seeing you wiping a tear from your eye uh, when that signal arrived to tell you that it, it had finally landed. It was emotional. Everyone was emotional at the time. Do you ever relive that, that moment? Do you ever sort of think back? Because at the time, it must have been, obviously was, overwhelming. Yeah, well, I do remember um was a lot of pressure. We had been, we've been subject to a lot of pressure for months, years to prepare Rosetta. Actually, many people don't believe that for me the most stressful period for Rosetta was 2011, 12, and 13 when it was in hibernation, but not because of the hibernation. was to plan exactly all what we did in 2014. So this was a lot of pressure. Uh, the tears there came for a very specific reason. I've worked for many years with a colleague called Sylvain Lodil, was the spacecraft operations manager for Rosetta. And we were, I think, the two most experienced people in the team. And we decided to split teams. So he would take part of one team and I was on the other. And the day we landed, we touched down on the surface, spent years working on that time, and he was at home having a rest. And when I talked to him, I I couldn't keep tears back. So that's why (laughs) he was so professional that decided to take a rest exactly the time of landing. So this was, for me, a remarkable sign of professionalism. It was because you couldn't have your two most experienced people sort of on the same team in, in case you needed well, to hand over. And... To, to balance a bit the, the, the expertise over the teams. In the end, he was focusing more on the, uh, coming to the point when we would release Fila from Rosetta, and it was focusing more on the on descent part. Because it is, people don't realise, do they often, that it, it's 24-7. There's always somebody looking after what's going on, even like, like you say, when it's in hibernation. Some, some people don't, don't get the meaning of the word operations or operational means reliability, reliability and availability throughout time. And if you have to have a team professional 24-7, and it requires training of several people and shift, you can't work 24 hours a day, it's impossible. Uh, also, what I found quite interesting on, on the day when there were speeches afterwards, that I thought the Europeans were a little bit almost blasé about it, um, not quite British, but, you know, a modest. And it took, for me, a NASA scientist to actually stand up and go, this is audacious, and he really, you know, punched the air to sort of make people think, yeah, what we've done, and I, we, I mean Europeans, is, is amazing. Do you think there is that difference? Because obviously there are, there are NASA scientists involved in, 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 were involved in, in Rosetta and often involved in European missions as well. Is there a difference in approach between the American scientists who are a little bit more sort of vocal about, you know, yeah, we've done a good job? Uh, for sure, uh, there are some differences. And uh, 
I think we are lacking, lacking in having differences. I notice, uh, working for ESA, I do notice difference amongst nations. The good thing of uh, being in an international environment or collaborations is that you tend to filter out what is less positive and to just retain the most positive features of a, of a country or of our typical behavior. Uh, going back to NASA, ESA, I think it was good. Uh, NASA advertised our achievement. We made it real. <laughs> so this was a good collaboration. Do you think they've copied you a bit with this uh, mission to an asteroid that NASA are going to do? Because I sort of felt when I heard that it had been approved, I thought, yeah, we've, we've sort of been there, done that. No, I don't think that there is a copying. I think uh, every, every space agency has its own, its own programme. I personally believe that space agency could collaborate more on setting programs. A certain agency should all collaborate, but maybe one leader in small bodies, another leading the Mars program, another one leading the moon exploration. This would be the ideal setup. The landing day of Philae was was quite overwhelming for everyone involved, and I was getting messages text messages, emails, just constantly, just from friends who were reading my coverage and just wanting to know, was I there, and things like that. So what it was like for you guys was just um, just beyond belief, really. But let me take you back a little bit before then. Um, in a much more controlled environment, when it seemed as if Rosetta was, was almost our own little secret, and that was wake-up day... And I remember that day of, of waiting um, in ESOC um, and then the signal being about 15 minutes late to come in and the tension and then the eventual release. I mean, if, if, if ESA's PR department had wanted to script something for maximum dramatic potential, they couldn't have done better. Um, and I remember at that time you exploding out of your chair when you saw that, that, that signal and just this tremendous feeling like the mission is on. This spacecraft has done something amazing, which has woken itself up, found Earth, transmitted the signal. Um, what, what, what were your memories of that particular time? Yeah, yeah. First, I have to acknowledge that the colleagues from PR did a fantastic job. We were a bit reluctant because of the uncertainties we had on this, on this wake-up. But in hindsight, it was the right thing to do. And it's also... We are paid by taxpayers, we are public servants, and I think it's correct to share all what we do and to share also the fact that there are risky operations, risky activities. If, there, if these things were easy, we wouldn't do them. On that day, for me, the, was the, I think was the strongest emotion in, in my professional life, no doubt, even more than the day we landed with Phile. Uh, with Phile, it's like coming to an end for, for, for something there, I say, now we have the mission. That day was yes or no, zero or one. The landing of Philae, of course, was important, but the mission was already at the comet. The main mission was the orbiter around the comet itself, even though maybe less appealing than Philae itself. Uh, the emotion of the, the hibernation exit, I will never forget. And you were talking about the messages got, you know, we received during the landing of Philae. I think the funniest one was from a old mate from the high school, I received a text message on my phone. I was there in the control room when I was tearing tears, and it was, Andrea, are you by any chance involved in the Rosetta project? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a bit. I, I, I hate to bring it on to ExoMars, but we've had, we've had successful landing on the, on the comet, all, I mean, Rosetta, success all the way through. With the latest ExoMars landing, you didn't have that, that successful landing. What have you learned from 
from that? Have you learned what's, what's gone wrong and so it won't happen when you have XMRs 2020? Well, this is the idea, definitely. That's why we did this part of the 2016 mission. The one part of the mission was testing technologies to land on Mars. Uh, we have validated several of them, so we have extremely positive news. It's clear that we didn't land as softly as we intended. Um, we have isolated... Well, that's, that's, that's a, a bit of a statement, isn't it? How many thousands of miles did it smash across the surface? Right. Um, <laughs> We, Putting a positive spin on that. Yeah, no, we have, uh, we have definitely positive things. We have some of the technologies that we, we had never tested before that work in the Martian environment. We have uh, sort of isolated the problem that uh, caused the failure of landing. And uh, we haven't resolved the problem yet, but we have all the data, we believe, to, to fix it, to have it properly fixed for 2020. And this is mandatory. If we were not in a position to identify the problem and resolve it, then the test was totally useless. If we do, then it's exactly why we do the test. So. And I think the thing that, that, that perhaps got forgotten here, you've got in orbit now right. another orbiter. Europe has two missions around Mars. I mean, that's quite exciting. Well, it's definitely exciting. We have uh, confirmed our consolidated capability, if you want, of flying to Mars and setting an orbiter around Mars, which is not mm, so straightforward. Anyhow, uh, we have this orbiter, which is there for two purposes, a scientific one, but also to act as a relay, radio relay for the next mission. If we, without this orbiter, we wouldn't be able to relay back the, the rover data. How do you contrast and compare? Do you, as soon as Rosetta's over, do you have to sort of literally think, okay, it's gone now, next, I've got to concentrate? Because I know that the space scientists are often sometimes working on two missions in parallel at the same time, rather than one after the other. Yeah, for me personally, the day we landed... Uh, on, on Churyumov-Gerasimenko with Phile was a bit, not really the end of Rosetta, but as a flight director, I had completed my activities. Of course, it's still under my responsibility, but there was a bit my end, of personal end of Rosetta. And I focused more on missions under development. We have Bepi Colombo to Mercury, Solar Orbiter, the two ExoMars were still under preparation, and Jews to fly to the moon system of Jupiter. So I'm focusing more on these things now. Excellent. And we're looking forward to ExoMars 2020, of course, uh, because the rover will be made in Britain. And then thank you very much, Andrea Akamatsu. <laughs> This is the Space Boffins podcast. We're recording live at Astrofest in front of a live audience. As you can, are you still alive? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll put some pictures up of our recording uh, as soon as the podcast goes out, which, uh, if you're listening to it, will be right now. Now, it's time for our mystery sound. Any idea what this is? not a rave. Any, any ideas? A pulsar? No, no, it's not actually. It's made from a machine. Uh, it's called Machine 9, which is a rotating um, aluminium cylinder, Woo! about one and a half metres long, and it's got sources, sounds engraved into um, orbits along its length. But those sounds is actually live data that have come from space debris. 
And this is part of an exhibition. Uh, it's, it's a piece of sound art, basically, but it's also done with um, some space scientists as well. The sound art's by Nick Ryan, and it's part of the Adrift Project, which is combining science and art to raise awareness of the 27,000 pieces of debris that are currently orbiting the Earth. And you can see this machine in action that's producing that uh, live, actually at the London Science Museum from the 14th to the 17th of February, and have a little bit of a rave at the same time. Now, there are two short speeches that bracketed the Apollo missions to the moon. The first was Neil Armstrong's One Small Step. The second was this one from Gene Cernan. And as we leave the moon and Taurus Littrell, we leave as we came, and God willing, as we shall return, with peace and hope for all mankind. Godspeed the crew of Apollo 17. Gene Cernan, who died in January. Well, both Sue and I have been lucky enough to meet and interview the last man on the moon several times. And we think, actually, my interview with him back in June was, unfortunately, his last. Uh, you drove a moon buggy with him, Sue. I did. I was... Uh, not w- on the moon. Not on the moon. No. I was uh, working for the BBC. That would be cool, wouldn't B- it? Yeah, the BBC at the time. And he was over and uh, I did a piece for News 24 and Breakfast News. And they had a replica moon buggy that they got myself and Jean Cernan in, in front of the Science Museum. So I can actually say I've been in a moon buggy with Jean Cernan, which is pretty cool. And in fact, we were going through our books um, just a couple of days ago and discovered we both had the same book autographed by Gene Senna, which is a bit greedy really, but um, I'm just so proud to have, have, have met him and uh, very, very sad. He was quite, um, he really wanted to go back to the moon as well. Exuberant, brilliant advocate for going back to the moon and uh, I'd say one of the most impressive astronauts. He flew three missions, Gemini 9, which included a near-fatal spacewalk, Apollo 10, a full-dress rehearsal for the moon landings, and then in 1972 he commanded, of course, Apollo 17. Well, in recent years he'd been advocating this return to the moon and his last great project was a feature film called The Last Man on the Moon anyone here seen The Last Man on the Moon? A few hands up they didn't work on the radio, can you shout out yay? (laughs) Yay! Actually quite a few, it's really good, Uh, genuinely it's well worth seeing Um, we're going to play an extract from the interview I conducted with him back, this one was in 2014 and uh, this is when I asked him about those final words I really was at a loss because, number one, I didn't want to leave. Number two, we had to. We didn't have the, uh, the oxygen and the other and the water, everything else we needed to stay much longer. I looked down at my last footsteps, and, and I realized they were mine, but I also realized I wouldn't come in this way again. Somebody would, but it wouldn't be me. And I looked over my shoulder and, uh, and looked at the earth, and I described the meaning of it to me. Many times in the past, I've always felt going to the moon, leaving Earth orbit was not just a technologically different space program, philosophically and spiritually as well. Not religiously, spiritually as well. So that looking back there, it had some special significance to me, particularly because I could see it and feel it three-dimensionally. It had dynamics, it had impact, it was alive, and it was moving with purpose and with beauty through this endless of space and time. And I look back at there and I said, in those short few minutes, I wanted to figure out what was the meaning 
of what we, not Apollo 17, the significance of everyone in, alive in the world today, what was the significance of our having left the cradle of civilization and called the moon our home for three days? What does that mean to the future? I searched for that answer. I, I needed more time. I wanted to press the freeze button, stop time, give me a chance to think about it. I had an opportunity to sit on God's front porch looking at the small part of the civilization of this universe that he created. All you can do now is think about it. Let your imagination wander. Take yourself out there. The answer to the next question, what is it all about? What did it mean? Only the future holds an answer. And do you sense a change in momentum, maybe not in the U.S. Congress, but in the people you come across to want to have a, a return to the moon and go on go on to Mars? Do you sense there is a a renewed effort? You've got, I mean, the rise of space tourism, for instance. You've got uh, SpaceX. I seem to at least want to believe that this younger grade school and high school generation is far more excited and interested in space but then maybe their big brothers and sisters were who were a little bit you know we had so much technology hitting us iphones all this stuff you know and and, and sometimes i ask these young folks what are you going to do with that technology what, well they can dial they can text they can do all these things but what what can you really make can you make something happen with it and and there was a tremendous amount of complacency here about a half a generation ago of young people who, you know, what's in it for me? Young people who are afraid to take a risk. And I've always told, told kids, if you're afraid to fail, afraid to take a risk, you'll never know how good you are. You'll never know what success really means. But that's coming back again. Their younger brothers and sisters are starting to ask the questions that need to be asked. And while the kettle is boiling, I think we've got to keep the fire lit and, you know, that's where I am for the balance of my life, trying to keep that fire lit in the hearts and the minds of those dreamers. Last Man on the Moon, uh, Gene Cernan. You can hear the full interview in our August 2014 podcast. And incidentally, I should mention, the bulk of the conversation I had with him last year has yet to be broadcast. And we hope to bring you more news on that next month. And um, Stuart, I mean, Gene Cernan... Uh, I mean, I I think he's never quite got the recognition he deserves. Remarkable mission. Everything about everything he's done is quite incredible. Yes, he's a he's a, he's a hugely significant figure. Um, perhaps most importantly for me, um, because of the way he speaks about the experience and and what that means. Because at the time of the space race and landing on the moon, there were clear technological, political, engineering aims to do this, to get there. And and those kinds of concerns about what this meant um, were, were lost. And so now we find ourselves in a situation where we're contemplating another return. I mean, almost, uh, almost now 50 years since we first landed on the moon. And this time I do sense this feeling that if we decide to go back to the moon... Um, then we do it for something that has um, philosophical and cultural underpinning meanings as well as scientific and exploratory. Uh, and so his voice in that and his reasoning and to frame those questions, um, it's sad that we've lost it almost at the time we need it the most. 
He's very erudite as well, which is uh, what I like about whenever you hear an interview with him, you feel as if you're hearing something um, impassioned and fresh and um, thoughtful. It isn't just off-pat, which a lot of them understandably can get because they've said the same things to the same people and answered the same questions so many times, but not with him. Mm, absolutely, absolutely right. R.I.P. Jean Cernan. Right, our final guest here from the uh, Space Boffins podcast is another of the speakers here at AstroFest. So please welcome an astronomer from the Carnegie Institution for Science in Washington, D.C., and the discoverer of Planet Nine, Scott Shepard. Right, Scott, first of all, Planet Nine, it's absolutely huge, ten times the mass of the Earth, why haven't we found it earlier? <laughs> Where's it been hiding? Well, uh, I'll start out with two things. First of all, I wouldn't use the word discover. Uh, we infer that Inferred, this, we infer yeah. this planet is there. Uh, in 2014, uh, me and my colleague Chad Trio wrote a, a paper that was in Nature, uh, and we were about 70% sure that this, this planet existed. Uh, and then some new recent results came out last year uh, by another group, and I was 80, 80% sure this planet existed. Uh, and now we, we just came out with a new, some more new results uh, that I'll be talking about at the AstroFest here. Uh, and I'm about 90% sure this planet exists. Uh, <laughs> but there's, uh, there's a lot of unknowns in it, and the size of it is one of them as well. It could be anywhere from... Uh, it's definitely bigger than the Earth. In order to have the gravitational pushing around of these other smaller objects, it has to be bigger than the Earth, probably at least five Earth masses. But it could be actually even bigger than Neptune. It might be uh, even a giant planet-type object. So we call it a super-Earth-to-giant to planet object. And it was one of the reasons that we've not noticed this before is because it is so far away from the Earth. Yeah, we think it's uh, some 20 times further than Pluto. Uh, and, when in, and it's basically the laws of physics. Uh, these, the only way we can observe this object is really from reflected sunlight. And uh, as the sunlight goes out, it's an R-square law, and then this has to reflect off this object and come back, which is an R-square law. So it's an R to the fourth law, which basically means if you move something twice as far away, it gets 16 times fainter. So very big objects, giant planet-type-sized objects, uh, 20 times further than Pluto is, are extremely faint objects. And our technology today is only becoming uh, now able to observe something like this. And talk us through how you inferred that this uh, planet is out there. Yeah, so uh, there's, uh, there's Pluto and the Kuiper Belt, which are a bunch of objects, comet-like objects just beyond Neptune. Uh, and in 2012, uh, we, we got interested in what was, what was beyond this Kuiper Belt. Uh, the Kuiper Belt has an edge to it. And so we started a survey uh, just looking for objects very, very far out there. And we found, we found the object with the most distant orbit ever observed in our, in our solar system. It never comes any closer than three times Pluto's distance from the sun. Uh, and we looked at this object, and there was one other object similar to it. So we had two, two of these what we call extreme chiral objects. Uh, and we couldn't say much with two. That's, that's very low number of statistics. So then, then we uh, noticed that there's 10 other objects that came in a little closer, but they were still uh, quite far away from the, to the giant planet region. So there's, we had 12 objects which should not be gravitationally affected by the giant planets. Yet they... Uh, and they all grouped together. Their, their orbits are, have a lot of similarities in their semi-major axes, their eccentricities, and the angles that they, they come around the sun. And they should have random angles. They shouldn't be uh, grouped like this. And so the best explanation for that is there has to be a, some big, massive object out there that we don't know of, we haven't observed yet, 
shepherding these objects into these similar types of orbits. You don't just infer planets, but you do discover lots of other things, don't you? How many bodies have you discovered? Uh, I, I don't know the count that. Uh, I started out in grad school uh, at University of Hawaii, and uh, we, th- there's new technology coming online. All these digital cameras that people have, uh, they're getting bigger and bigger, and we put these on the, on the backs of telescopes. And they got to the point in the, in the late 1990s where uh, we could cover the whole regions around planets called the Hill Sphere, the whole gravitational dominated regions around planets. And we started doing that with Jupiter, and then we went to Saturn, and then we went to Uranus, and then we went to Neptune. We found a bunch of new moons around each one of those planets. Um, and then, then, then we took these detectors, similar detectors, and that's what we're doing now with the, with the far outer system. So we've discovered several dwarf planet objects, objects that are, uh, they're all smaller than Pluto. Pluto is still the king of the Kuiper Belt. It's still the largest object out there. But uh, we found several more objects uh, just a little bit smaller than Pluto. What does it feel like? I mean, I would be, who wouldn't be thrilled here if you suddenly disco- realize you've discovered something that has, is unknown to mankind? Yeah, I mean, that's the reason I got into this field. And, uh, I mean, growing up, I was always just loved outer space. Uh, I loved the unknown. I always wanted to know what was out there. I always considered myself someone who, like, is, we're mapping the solar system. We're finding uh, where, what, what is out there, uh, finding a bunch of these small objects. And, and in a talk I'll give here, we show that there's a lot of structure out there. And this structure tells us how our solar system formed and how it's evolved over time. And, yeah, and it's a very exciting. I love going to work every day. Uh, it's kind of like a box of chocolates uh, in, the, in the famous uh, Forrest Gump movie. You never know what you've got to get. Uh, it takes, uh, you've got to look through a lot of the data, uh, and sometimes your, all, your eyes go cross-eyed, but uh, you do find uh, some very cool things, and it's very exciting. Uh, will we ever be able to see Planet Nine? Uh, yes. Once it's, uh, we believe, uh, it depends on, the, there's three big unknowns with, with this planet. Uh, one is its size. So the, the smaller it is, the, the, the less bright it'll be. The other thing is uh, we don't know how much light it reflects. It could be as dark as coal or it could be as bright as snow. Uh, so that's a big unknown as well, how, how, what the surface is. And then we don't know the orbit that well either. We, it could be anywhere from 10 times further than Pluto to 30 times further than Pluto, and that will, that will change the brightness as well. But we think uh, if it's on the edge of all, if it's at the worst case of all those, it would be a very faint object, and it might not even be detectable by our current technology. But most likely it's in the middle ground of all three of those, uh, and so we should be able to just detect it, uh, but it will take the next generation of telescopes, these, these giant telescopes, 30-meter telescopes, and the James Webb Space Telescope to actually look at the composition of this object. We, we might be able to just detect it as a point of light, but to actually determine its composition will require the next generation of telescopes. And the work that you've been doing to um, look at these groupings of the, of the Kuiper Belt objects that give you an idea that there's the object there... Uh, are you narrowing down the search area all the time so that when we have James Webb or the, these uh, very large ground-based telescopes, um, you can efficiently search those areas uh, for Planet Nine? Yeah, we're trying to narrow down. It's, uh, it's tough to do. Uh, these objects that, uh, that, are, that we think this uh, planet is shepherding, they take thousands of years to go around the sun, some 5,000 years or so. And we've only discovered most of these in the last few years. So we have a very small uh, arc of their orbits. And so though we know the general orbits, we don't know them to extreme detail. And the uncertainties in their orbits make it hard to exactly understand exactly where this planet could be. Um, but we do, we, there's only a small number of statistics. Uh, we have like uh, 20 of these objects now that, uh, that we see this, this, this clustering in. 
And uh, we're trying to find more of them. The more small objects we can find, it can lead us to the bigger object. Uh, but right now, it's still a pretty big area of sky that we have to search. Uh, it's uh, some 2,000 square degrees of sky, um, which, uh, and only the, there's only two or three telescopes that can find this. There's only two or three telescopes that have the wide field of view that you need uh, and, the, and the depth we can go to. So it takes, uh, it, it's got to take some time, probably the next three to five years to cover this whole area. Scott Shepherd, thank you very much for sharing. Uh, and we've got a, a taste there of what his talk is going to be like for people here at AstroFest, but for now and for our podcast listeners, thank you very much indeed. Scott Shepherd. Thank you also to our other guests, Catherine Joy, Andrea Accomazzo, and Stuart Clark. And that's the Space Boffings podcast. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium, and we're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. Thank you very much to our audience here at AstroFest in London. Thank you for listening, and keep watching the skies, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.